Hey guys, before we get started on today's episode, I don't know if you remember back in episode 171, I talked to two men, Dominique Cortuccio and Brian Stacy. They are the host of the Man Amongst Men podcast. And I just wanted to give them a shout out, make sure that you check them out after listening to today's episode. These hosts tackle problems that men never talk about, but secretly struggle with. They believe that a man operates in the highest version of himself when he creates an environment where he and others can thrive. A few of their notable episodes, Why Men Should Do Inner Work, The Number One Enemy to Living a Powerful Life, and even 11 Ideas to Design Your Morning Routine. When you get done with today's episode, make sure you search for The Man Amongst Men on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody in my life turned into an abuser or harmful in some way, shape, or form. I definitely had no identity that was healthy. Mm. To me, my identity was disgusting, ugly, unwanted, unlovable, all all those really, you know, oppressive words. So once I learned, for me, again, my story was finding out who I was in Christ's eyes, who he said I was, Mm -hmm. the value that he said I had, that no matter what had happened to me, I was still blameless as far as he was concerned. That gave me a reference point. I've always felt immense fear. I was born with several palsy. I have always felt small. I was told not to take risks. I may be blind, but I teach people how to see. And I'm proud to be an individual. This podcast is for you, the unconventional leader. Maybe you are the one that everyone discounted. Maybe you struggle with fear and self-doubt. We are here to empower the next generation of self-starters to step up. Use their voice and make an impact in this world. Hey guys, welcome to today's episode. If this is your first time listening, my name is Heather Parody. I am your host. Wow, we have a powerful, powerful episode for you today. I've been doing this for well over two years, going on three years, and this is one of those episodes that I'm always going to remember. This story is so powerful, and it's hard. It's a hard thing to talk about, but it's something that as leaders we need to address because there are so many of us out there who have this hidden uh, shame or feel very alone in, in their story and their past things that happened to them that they could not help. And sometimes that keeps us back from leading in the way that we feel called to lead because we think, who am I to do this or that because of what happened to me in the past. The entire point of this show is to call out unconventional leaders who have gone through some of the hardest things and use their story to make an impact in this world. Today's guest is Renee Michelle. She is such a beautiful human who is an advocate for those who have endured child abuse. After experiencing 26 years of physical, sexual, and emotional abuse, she says she is now able to embrace her story and the healing journey. She grew up in a fatherless home and her sexual abuse started at the age of 10. As a young woman, she had two suicide attempts as well as years of substance abuse and harmful relationships as a means to cope with the trauma that she experienced. In today's episode, we talk about how Renee has not only been able to heal from her past, but also use her story to impact women from all over the world who struggle with feelings of shame and isolation. Today, we talk about how we can forgive 
the unforgivable, how we can let go of shame after abuse, and how we can know what forgiveness and healing really looks like. Renee is a firehouse woman. I'm so excited to introduce you to you. And I know this is going to set free a lot of people. And I just wanted to say real quick, I, I don't say this very often in the show, but I want you guys to know that if you are struggling right now, if you feel alone, if you feel like some of the stuff that you have endured is just unbearable, please reach out to somebody. You can reach out to us. I have in the show notes some resources for you to, to help you through this journey. Please just understand that you still have value. You still have purpose no matter what you have been through. And I hope hearing Renee's story really brings that home for you today. Before we get started, if there is anyone in your life who you know would benefit from hearing this, maybe they endured abuse growing up as a child, maybe they struggle with shame and guilt from different things that they've experienced, please take a screenshot of this and share it with them. We want to impact so many people this year and we really need your help to do it. All right, friends, let's get into this interview with my friend, Renee Michelle. Yeah, so at around the age of 10, uh, when I was quite young, I'm the youngest of five girls, my mum was in a situation where my father was no longer in in the home and she was raising us five girls. And at around that age, we went through quite a significant trauma that sort of reverberated throughout the whole family. And of course, we all have our own different ways of coping with trauma and adversity. And basically, my mum's response was not to cope. She developed a drinking problem. And as my sisters moved out of home, they're quite a lot older than I was. I was left at home to then become the caretaker. And unfortunately, mum started to bring men home that were not safe. Uh, There was a lot of alcohol consumption in the home. That began my road down um, the next 26 years of physical, sexual and emotional abuse at the hands of these men. And then that became family members as well, close family friends, and it just perpetuated this cycle of abuse. And I didn't have anybody to tell. So I actually didn't speak about my abuse to a soul until I was 26 years old. So I just buried it, continued to go on with life, and I was not thriving in any way, shape, or form. And at certain points, I don't even feel like I was really surviving, merely existing. I went down the road of multiple addictions to drugs and alcohol, entered into violent relationship after violent relationship. And, Mm. you know, we hear about it all the time, just that trauma cycle. And that was very much the road I went down. And then I experienced two suicide attempts at 17 and 19. And this just kept going and going. And and my sort of turning point came and everybody sort of said, when did it change for you? And it changed for me when I had my baby girl, the birth of my daughter. Honestly, remember looking down at her when she was just a newborn and going, right, this is it. I, I was in, in a very uh, narcissistic, abusively marriage. It was emotional abuse, not physical abuse. And I just remember going, I have to do something here. Like I had tried various times of my life to, you know, start fresh and, and change that trajectory, but kept falling down again and again. With her, I knew I had to stand up and stay standing. And that really did make a shift in my mind and pulled out a resourcefulness and I guess a fire that I had never really felt before. Mm. And that was the moment for me where I would have done anything, walked across the hot coals, whatever I needed to do to make that change. And that really was the the beginning of of a 16-year recovery journey. Wow. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, I know identifying abuse is something that's come up before people sometimes you know, when you grow up as a, as a young child and you're experiencing this, like even understanding that, Hey, this isn't right. 
uh, there's something off here. Did you experience that? Like you were really young. How old were you? And did you, were you able to comprehend that this is abuse or something wrong with this? This isn't the way this is supposed to happen. Physically in my body, because of how I reacted, the terror, I, I, we always hear about fight, flight and uh, freeze. And I went to freeze in that moment. And since, you know, years since going to university and really studying the effects of complex trauma, yeah. my, my uh, response, my physiological response was to freeze. And what that did for me, I, I, thought I would disassociate. So it just happens so often and in my own home, in my own room, that it wasn't a situation where I was like, oh, this is abuse or this is bad. It was just shut down and then deny, bury, move on. So I, I always knew that it, there was something not right and inherently evil about it. You can just feel that sure. even as a child. But the fear and the isolation and not having a support network, not having any safe people because my caregivers were the people that hurt me and neglected me. So it very much did silence me. And we do talk about the silence of survivors and, and the, the way that we sort of manage it in our brain. And for me, it was just pretend, minimize, move away and, and ignore it. At any point, did you go to your mom or your sisters and talk about this? No, my sisters had already left the home. They moved out. And my mum, because she was emotionally absent, she was intoxicated the majority of the time, I, in my mind, and again, during my research and what I found out is that in my mind, I became the good girl to not add, uh, not add another layer of burden onto my mummy, who was all I had left in the world. So as much as I began to resent her in my adolescent years, I was still highly protective of her. It was this instinctual reaction. You know, if, if uh, she was in an abusive relationship with a man, I would still want to defend her, even though deep down inside I resented her because in my mind, how could you not see what was happening? But I, I honestly do believe, and it did go on behind closed doors, she would leave for work and these men would come back in the home. Mm-hmm. So it was very, very hidden, very secretive and um, very manipulative behavior in the background. Oh, what's your relationship with Lockhart now? Yeah, it's been tough. There was four years where I had nothing to do with mum when I was in my late teens and I just really pulled away and went through my rebellious years of really just being not a happy or really not a nice person either towards her that is. And because I'm not wired that way, I'm not inherently a bitter or negative person. I just withdrew. And it got to a point again when I was pregnant actually with my daughter that I came upon this crossroads where I really started feeling like I wanted a relationship with my mum but being confused by that. Mm-hmm. So that's when I sought psychological help and counsellors and I had been to so many I really didn't have much faith in them. But I didn't know where else to go. And basically they said, well, you have a choice. If you either want a relationship or you don't, and if you do, you, this is hard work. And it was five years of hard work of letting her back in, rebuilding that trust, cultivating a relationship. Unfortunately, I actually live with my mum for two more days. She moves out in a couple of days. We have lived together for the last two years. Wow. But it does bring up friction. And there, I mean, I've forgotten her. I've forgiven her. I've moved on. Absolutely. I've forgiven everybody. I, hold, I have no no issues or, or hate against anybody. It's, it's not productive, but it, it does touch on nerves now and again. And over the years, I have just realized, you know, some people just don't have the capacity to love us like we wish they could. And it's either let them move on and go 
and just wish them well, which is the point that I have reached, or we're continually grasping and desiring something that is just not going to come to pass. So it's a, mm-hmm. it's something that I just had to settle within myself. And he mentioned looking at your daughter and that overwhelming love. And I can, I, I know I'm a mom of a little girl, two little girls too. And I know my perception of the world and abuse and adversity shifted so much because, you know, you know, it's wrong and you know, it's unjust, but then when you experience the love of a child for a child, you think, how could anyone let this happen? Because you know how fiercely you love your own daughter. And so, but then you mentioned, you know, holding on to anger and unforgiveness is unproductive and I, and that's true. But how do you, when you feel that love yourself and you probably think, mm. like, how the hell did anybody let this happen to something so precious? Mm. How do you begin to like let go of that anger and that frustration and that resentment? Because I mean, it's just that you have it. For me, it was very much uh, finding Christ for me. Uh, and I think we all have our own you know, higher power or belief system or something that we turn to that gives us that almost superhuman strength to do things that in our own ability we just couldn't do. Yeah. And what I did when I was, uh, that turning point for me when I when I did really look at her and go, what do I do? I actually went to my local church, just oh, wow. opened up the phone book and I tried everything else. The drugs didn't work. Meditation didn't work. Everything else I had sought out had failed me. So it was like, okay, well, what do I have to lose? And that was very much, <laughs> wow, that day was transformational. But that day I walked into church, there were survivors on the platform sharing their story. And these were pastors that had been abused as children, sharing from a place of empowerment and health and healing. And I had never heard that. To me, abuse was shameful. You hid away, swept it under the carpet. These guys were embracing it and sharing and people were applauding and crying. And I was like, what the heck is going on here? Mm -hmm. That's when I began to ask questions. That's when I started to just little bit by little bit share and ask for help. And they did help me. And that process of learning who I was in his image really did enable me to go through the process. And it was many years of a process. But I so desperately wanted to leave that part of my life behind. And holding that against my mum actually triggered memories for me. Mm. It filled my body with anxiety and fear and, and, you know, tension, which took me straight back to my past. And I wanted to be rid of that. So I knew I had to change things and understand how to do that. And I did. And I put the work in and, and I worked through it. I still have triggers. Definitely. Sometimes she's my biggest trigger, but I'm aware. And once we become self-aware of what those triggers are and how we need to respond in our best way, then I already have strategies in place. I know what to employ when that happens and I deal with it. How do we know we're like starting to heal or that we have healed or that we have forgiven and all of that? Because I I, I can relate. I understand like there's triggers are going to be there, but how do we know we're getting to that place of kind of healing and wholeness? Yeah, it's definitely an, a case-by-case, case, very individual situation for each of us. And again, it, it, you know, you, you spoke earlier about, you know, being a parent, we look and we go, how could you let this happen? How do people allow it? We are all such individual beings with our own experience, our own pain and our own blind spots. And coping mechanisms are huge. The way that we deny what we see and feel really does get us through life. And it's purely survival. So for me, once I stopped feeling that, 
And, you know, she didn't make me feel bad or negative about myself. She didn't trigger something that made me want to lash out at her. And I was actually able to start to appreciate and sympathize because I reached a point where I looked at her and thought, how sad is it that you have never had a love for me out of possibly no fault of your own? I don't know that that's not my issue and I'm not even going to go there. But you've missed out on what I've had with my daughter and that's nothing but sad for me. Yeah. So I actually started to change my thought process. And instead of looking at it as like, that is evil, that is bad, how could you? It was like, that. I feel so sorry for you. That is such a shame because you have never had what I have with my own children. Yeah. And wow. then release her into that. What about the the abusers? Because you don't have that a connection of like a mother daughter, that's like an outsider. And then two, you're probably not seeing them anymore and you've lost contact with them. And so forgiving and healing somebody who's out of your life and never had that connection. What does that look like practically? Practically again, very, very different for each of us. For me again, and maybe this was a blessing for me personally, because I did disassociate and I did separate myself very, very quickly from the actual individual once the abuse with that particular person ended, they they were out of my mind. The sensation was still there. The memory was there, but their face wasn't there. Wow. Yeah, I, I automatically would blank out their face and just see this darkness. It was soon replaced by another person or another incident though. So that was my way and my mind's way of coping. So again, I had to really learn about what would work for me. We, we all relate differently to different therapeutic approaches and, and healing, you know, ways to heal. For me, doctors didn't work for me. They wanted to treat the symptomology and give me medication and label me. So that that always left me feeling very unfulfilled. Now, when I went to church, the whole different approach of actually telling me how amazing I was and telling me I was normal and not actually looking at my inability to function or deal with stress, they got down to the core and basically said, you're amazing. You're wonderful. You can do anything. We're going to help you to do it. What do you need? How do you feel? And I never went to that place of not being able to forgive them purely because I never hung on to them. The, like I said, the sensations were in my body. That was the harder part to deal with. Mm. Trauma leaves, you know, a pain in our body, in our nervous system. That's what we carry around. Yeah. And it, the memories are a little bit, and this may confuse some people, easier to deal with than the physical fallout of what sits in our body and our nervous system. And um, that was what I had to work through. So a lot of, you know, therapeutic approaches around mindset, around shifting and reframing the events that happened to me and looking at them in a different way. And I did reach a point, and this is where I speak from now, and this is what gets me really excited about helping other women. It's become the fuel to my fire and it has enabled me to succeed in ways I never thought possible. Mm Because the gratefulness that I have in my heart, the way I see the world, my ability to parent the way that I do so completely and so lovingly was put there and enabled by those moments. So I reached a point where I actually embraced and thanked and acknowledged not the people, but the way that I, my body, my mind responded, healed, helped me survive, and then got me through and out the other side. Wow. You know, you mentioned um, earlier you you went to this church and there's these leaders standing on stage 
sharing openly the abuse and the things that they have been through. And it was celebrated. And I was just thinking about just how much, you know, even if you know, like, Hey, people are going to accept this and relate to it, whatever, like getting up in front of people mm. and sharing, Hey, I've, I went through this. I tried to kill myself. I struggled with substance abuse. I was in unhealthy relationships, like mm-hmm. all of this stuff that's so intimate. At what point did in your own healing journey, did you say like, Hey, I want to put myself out there, share these very vulnerable things and help other women. I was offered an opportunity when my son was three months old to volunteer in the evening at a women's residential rehab center that was close to my home. Now, these were young girls aged around 15 to 30 that were struggling with life controlling issues, mood disorders, teenage pregnancy, addiction, and so forth. And it was not long, only within a couple of months that I was approached by the psychologist on staff and said, you have found your calling. This is it. This is what you should be doing. The feedback we're having from the girls, Renee, is just like you're a breath of fresh air. I am what I am. I'm not this overly eloquent, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm clumsy. I am. <laughs> I'm just me. I'm real. And, you know, thank God because that spoke to the girls and they were able to relate and they felt normal and heard. And I started sharing just little snippets then and there because that was very early on in my Christian journey. And I would see them light up and draw in and inquire and want to know more. And often they would say, how do you know I felt that way? I don't tell anybody that. And I said, because that's how I felt, the shame, Mm. the guilt, the compounded guilt because it's happened so often and that freeze response had such a, a a real, you know, I'm so bad. Why didn't I fight, scream, run, flee? You know, you start trying to make sense of something you cannot make sense of. Mm. So as I started to share and saw what it did for people, that's when I went, there's something in this. And then I remembered, well, you started this, Renee, based on hearing other survivors tell you their story. And mm. that's when I became fascinated with the power of storytelling and how it really can pull people out of the darkness and give them that motivation and the light and the hope that they too can get out of the darkness for themselves. How do we know we're ready to share our story? Be very, And this is something that many, many people ask me. If you're in a situation where you do have a story to tell and you know you have a story to tell, be very, very careful who you share it with to begin with and start small, a very trusted advisor, someone who has maybe been a mentor or a leader who knows how to, um, you know, support you in your time of need, who has been there for you before, non-judgmental caring. Mm -hmm. And like I said, start very small, start gradually and you will see people's response. You will see, yeah, that felt really good or, oh, no, that's not the right person because trust when you've been through abuse and have just had it decimated your whole life, is something we really do struggle to extend and receive. So we have to be very mindful that when we're in that place, we want to do that, to just be very, very careful and deliberate about who we share that with and make sure you have a support network in place because it does bring up the past. Yeah. I think Brene, I think it's Brene Brown who talks about a vulnerability hangover whenever like you share something and it feels so good. And then you go home and you're like, holy crap. And you start to feel some of that. Uh, Did you experience that at all? What are some tips you have with when we start experiencing that? I definitely did start experiencing that. And unfortunately I was, uh, as I mentioned earlier, married to a man who was very narcissistic, very controlling, manipulating. And 
I had tried to share it with him because he had asked me about my experience and worst thing I could have done because he labelled me, again, it's your fault, you know, really put me back in that victim, you know, you should have done something, that's not normal, that's disgusting and really did make me withdraw back into my past and I thought, hang on a minute, this is so opposite to what I've been learning about. So I sought the right people out to start talking to just selectively one at a time. But I, I did notice that, you know, if, if I was too trusting or complacent, that, it would, that somebody's reaction, even a facial reaction of a, you know, it, makes you, it really makes you wince and withdraw back into yourself. So I had to really work on what was right for me. And that's the best advice I can give anyone who's doing this is you have to do what's right for you because we all heal differently and we all make sense of our reality differently. And when you're an abuse survivor, there's no logical thought in there because the trauma pulls your brain offline. Yeah. You don't think normally. And that's why you really have to find someone who is specialised, able and capable to stand alongside you and just be with you, not panic, not freak out and not try to fix it, but just be there with you as you go through the motions. Support networks are so essential. Yeah. And I didn't have that and it really did put my recovery back and then I had to often start from scratch. It was this very back, forward, back, forward. But that was environmental. That was purely just the situation I was in. So we just have to be mindful. Okay, what does my home life look like? What does my work life look like? If I have a memory that's triggered or something and I'm overwhelmed and can't cope, what's my plan? Where do I go? Who do I talk to? Mm. And I never had that in place because I didn't have anyone to talk to at home. So I really had to find it out the hard way. Now, what about just identity? Uh, A lot of our listeners are in leadership positions. So they're either, they have their own business, they're in nonprofit work, they're, they're leading teams, they're putting out their message online, they're leading, they're putting themselves (laughs) at the forefront, but you can be going through the motions and the actions, but the internal work of just seeing yourself as someone that has worth and value and someone that's worth uh, leading people. Mm. And there, there's a little bit of a disconnect there. I've experienced it. I know our listeners have. So yeah, I'm going through the actions I'm leading. I've overcome. I've done a lot of the healing stuff, but man, sometimes I still don't see myself as someone worth listening to. I don't see myself as a leader. What do we do? You need a reference point. So identity for me, as soon as you said it, I was like, yes, because identity for me is the starting point. It was very much my starting point. And in all the women that I coach, we start with identity. Who do you see yourself as? Mm. So for me, I never grew up with role models. Everybody in my life turned into an abuser or harmful in some way, shape or form until I could totally get out of that. And then I attracted more of those and just kept perpetuating that cycle. I definitely had no identity that was healthy. Mm. To me, my identity was disgusting, ugly, unwanted, unlovable, all all those really, you know, oppressive words. So once I learned for me, again, my story was finding out who I was in Christ's eyes, who he said I was, Mm -hmm. the value that he said I had, that no matter what had happened to me, I was still 
blameless as far as he was concerned, that gave me a reference point. So I always work on identity with every single woman that I work with. And it's not so much about what I didn't have, it's who I wanted to become. So I started looking at role models, people that I admired that had character strengths that really drew me in. I started to model my life on that. So it doesn't matter if we didn't have these things in the past. We very much can cultivate new ways of thinking and behaving Mm. based on what it is we want to achieve in our life. So for me, getting that reference point, everything else was wrapped around that. That's how I developed my self-worth and value. And of course, I would fall down and have those days where I didn't like myself and didn't believe it. So I had to lean on those support networks and go back to the basics of what I had learned and start really, it is repetition, repetition, repetition over and over and over again. And you do absolutely reach a point in time where you do stand in front of the mirror, and I I talk about this with my girls all the time, and say it and it doesn't come back, we can actually stand there and embrace it because we now believe it. Mm. That's when things change. But it very much is just going over and over and over. It's like forgiveness. We don't always feel like we want to do it. But forgiveness is an action. It's not a feeling. Yeah. So we just do it over and over and over until it does resonate with us and become part of our DNA. I know we're right at time. If you don't mind if I ask you one more thing, Um, being a mom and having a daughter, looking at her, how do you overcome fear um, for her (laughs) life? And I guess instill in her the value and worth that you wish you would have had. I think that's a question I ask myself all the time with two little girls and just instilling that leadership in her and that worth. And do you have any, any advice on that? Absolutely. Look, you're, you, we know our children watch everything we do, everything that comes out of our mouths. So I very much knew right from the outset that I had a lot of work to do on myself to be a good role model for her, to always be a strength to her of positivity and model to her, her identity and self-worth. So from a very, very young age, being as passionate I, as I am about intervention, abuse intervention, mm-hmm. I taught her from the age of two, three, four years old body safety, how to take care of herself. So right away, I was empowering her with the tools to protect herself, to survive, and to see herself as a valuable individual separate from me. She is her own self. And we have to teach our children that you have a book, you have a voice, you have an identity, you have rights, you, you know, that they are special and entitled to every beautiful thing in the world. And that starts from day one. So I instilled that with her very early. We've had open conversations since writing my book. They both know my story inside and out. Mm. And because I have done that, they're strong. They, they are very empathic about the world. They are not naive. They, they're very kind and they're very in tune with the world's suffering and pain. But they are also very, very good at voicing their opinions, standing up for themselves and their friends. So they in themselves now have amazing leadership qualities that I'm just in awe of because, you know, 17 and 14 they are and they're leaders in their own groups of, of children that they hang around. People seek them out. Mm. So, um, and that, that has to start with us. It's nobody else's responsibility, but our own. Man, that fires me up. You mentioned your book. Where can people connect with you? Grab your book. What do you have going on? Yeah. Look, head to my website, reneemichelle.com. Everything's on there. The book, the programs, everything that I do, my social media links are all on there as well. I often do free training on, on Facebook and different workshops and yep, yeah, just head to the website. Awesome. I, I, I'm so drawn to your, your strength. You are just a powerhouse. And I knew that the moment I talked to you, 
a few weeks ago. I have our very final question. Let's say we were to go back in time to Renee when she walks into that church and she sits down and there's these leaders up there and they're sharing their story and your heart's probably pounding and you're sweating and you're like, what the hell is going on right now? If you were to go and sit with her for a moment and tell her one thing, what would that be? It's going to get harder before it gets better, but the reward on the other side is unimaginably beautiful. Just stick with it, girl. You've got this. (laughs) Love it. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you have not subscribed yet, please head over to iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and hit that subscribe button. And also, if you have a second, leave us a review. Lastly, we have a private Facebook group. If you are looking for a tribe of like-minded leaders who are unconventional in their approach, but dedicated to making an impact, head over to Facebook and type in unconventional leaders, and we will be sure to add you. You guys have a great week.